Man, I'm so pumped to be with you guys today. Today we continue a series called Equip. Let me hear you say Equip. And uh, the whole goal of Equip is we want for you to feel like you are in disciple-making boot camp, okay? So if you're new to Stone Creek, welcome, drop and give me 20, all right? Like, this is the kind of church that we wanna be. We wanna be a church that really prepares you, that trains you, that equips you, and that sends you out on mission to make a difference in this world for the fame of Jesus. Like, we believe that the joy of life changed isn't just reserved for people who stand on stages or sing songs, but we believe that you are supposed to be a part of changing the world, that you're invited in to be God's hand and feet. Let me show you where we get this from biblically. In Ephesians chapter four, God's word says this, it says, and he being Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to, give me that word, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We've got this crazy conviction that Christianity works best, not when it's left to professionals, but when everyday Jesus followers get equipped and engaged in the mission to make his name famous. We believe that the work of ministry, the building up of the church, the call to have gospel conversations isn't just reserved for people who stand on stages, but for everyday Jesus followers. And it's our desire as a church to recapture our collective sense of sentness that we see the early church has. Jesus says this in John chapter 20, verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The same way that God sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission 2,000 years ago to save humanity, God, Jesus, now passes that mission to us, we are called to be sent ones. And did you know that the early church, like they didn't even call themselves Christians. That word Christian, it didn't come till much later on in this movement. The early Christians were actually called followers of the way. Like how active is that? How movement oriented is that? Followers of the way. Now, I'm not sure we need to go back to that nickname because if you ask me, it's kind of creepy. You know, followers of the way, somebody's like, what religion do you describe to? I'm a follower of the way and I play dragons in dungeons every day, right? Like not a really easy one for people to understand followers of the way, but I love the movement nature to it. I love the idea of recapturing a sense of Jesus following where we prioritize in the way of Jesus, think in the way of Jesus, live in the way of Jesus, love in the way of Jesus. There was a popular pastor who wrote a book called, I love Jesus, but I hate his followers. I love Jesus, but I hate his followers. And the idea there is that there is this way of Jesus that seems lost today on his followers. There's this way that the early Christians lived where they didn't call themselves followers of the way. Other people called them followers of the way because they lived in the way of Jesus. And that seems to be lost on us. And so we wanna recapture the way of Jesus, of living like Jesus, of loving like Jesus, of being sent like Jesus. Well, what was Jesus sent to do? Check it out, this is one of my favorite things that Jesus says he was sent to do, Luke 19, 10, the son of man. That's one of Jesus' favorite nicknames for himself. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And this way is now our way. Let me ask you this question. Um, Are you familiar with lock-ins by show of hands? Does anybody know what a lock-in is? You know what a lock-in is? It's where Christian kids make out and youth pastors go to die, a lock-in. Y'all familiar with lock-ins, okay? I'm convinced that lock-ins are the reason that I hung my student ministry sneakers up, okay? Uh, pass that buck to Joe Baker. Um, 
Lock-ins are insane. They're a terrible idea. So a lock-in is where you invite all of the, you have an event at the church and you invite all of the junior and high school kids to come spend the night at the church building. Awful idea, okay? So the kids show up around 9 p.m. Um, and the parents come and you feed them a well-balanced meal of Mountain Dew and pizza. And then the parents just leave. And they leave in a 23-year-old kid who has no idea what they're doing, youth pastor, is left to entertain these kids and keep them from getting pregnant, okay? And that's, that's a lock-in, okay, in a nutshell. Um, and all night long, literally, you're just trying to entertain these kids and keep them from getting pregnant. And so um, one of the most popular games that you play at a lock-in, that's funny, is uh, sardines. Anybody ever play sardines before? Show of hands, sardines. Okay, sardines, if you've never played it, it's like reverse hide and go seek, okay? And so one person goes to hide and then everybody else goes to find them. And the goal of the game is to not be the last person who finds the person who hid. And so uh, all of the lights get turned out at the church and everybody's searching around, looking in the dark for the person who's hid. And then when you find them, you lay down next to them in the dark and then we wonder why students wanna make a baby, okay? Like, what are we thinking? It's a terrible, terrible game to play at lock-ins, but that's the way that it works. And so the object of the game is to find this person. And so what you're doing is you're trying to be as quiet as possible, as stealth as possible, as you go and find the person. And then when you get next to them, you wanna lay down and make sure that nobody else sees because you, you don't want anybody else to find what you found. The object is to find someone, to be somewhere, and then to not let anybody else in on what you found. Can I tell you that Jesus following should be the exact opposite of that? For those of us who have found life in Jesus, the very last thing that we should be doing is trying to keep it to ourselves. The very last thing that we should be doing is trying to be quiet about it, trying to keep it on the down low, trying to make sure that people don't know about it. No, the thing that we should be doing, the game of Christianity is to actually go out into the dark for those who are still looking, still searching, still haven't found their purpose, still don't know that God has come for them and bring them back home to the heart of God. This is the game of Christianity. This is what God has invited each and every one of us into, not to huddle up and honker down and play it safe and be quiet about our faith, but to be active about going out into the darkness and bringing as many people back home into the light. There's this story, um, this author, writer, speaker, her name's Christine Kane, and she travels all around and she tells this story about taking her daughter to Walmart. And um, she's from Down Under, she's from Australia. And uh, for those people, Walmart is like a big deal, okay? Like it's like Six Flags or Disneyland. They're pumped to go to Walmart. And so she tells this story about coming to America and bringing her little daughter. She's five, six, seven years old. And she's excited to take her to Walmart. She goes, I've never been to a place before where you can buy toilet paper, underwear, and a gun, okay? So she's pumped about Walmart um, America, okay? So she comes to Walmart and she takes her daughter and they're walking through and she gives her this budget and she says, you can buy something. And so her daughter chooses to buy this flashlight. It's this Dora the Explorer flashlight. And so they go through the checkout line and um, they get done and she hands her daughter the flashlight and puts the batteries in it. And immediately being a five or six year old little girl, she turns the flashlight on. But if you've ever been in Walmart before, you know, there are those big fluorescent lights, right? It's so bright that you can't see the flashlight. And so her, this little girl, her daughter, Christine's daughter, turns to her mom and goes, mom, let's go find some darkness. 
And isn't that the childlike faith that we should have as followers of Jesus? Shouldn't we have this desire in us if we've experienced the light of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the depth of the gospel in a real, in a, in a transformative way, shouldn't we say, man, let me go back into the darkness to those who are still searching, who are still wandering, who are still looking and show them this God that I have found. And so that's what we wanna do. We wanna equip you, train you, enable you and empower you to be able to go into this world and have gospel conversations, to take the light of Jesus into the darkest places. And so what does it look like? What do gospel conversations, what is the work of ministry? What is evangelism? What does this look like in a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth, post-everything culture? How do we do it in a world that's not interested, in a world that's not engaged? Well, I think that the way that we do is we don't try to innovate, but we actually evaluate how the early church did it. I don't think that we need to come up with new methods. We need to investigate and look at the early church and see what they did, how they moved this movement forward, and then just adopt the same lifestyle. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus tells his followers to go and to make disciples of all nations. And today I wanna look at another version of that Great Commission that is found in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, Acts, Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one is, what, is where we're gonna be. And what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at the way that the early church moved this movement forward. We're gonna look at the way that they responded to what Jesus told them to do. And we're just gonna try to do the same today. And so if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter one, we're gonna pick it up in verse eight. Let me catch you up on the story. This, is, this happens right after Jesus has already lived his life, died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world, resurrected from the dead, and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And right before that, he comes to his followers, about 120 of them, and he gives them this command. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, give me that word, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have been invited to stand before the court of humanity who is looking to make a verdict about life and about purpose, about love, about meaning, and about eternity. And we've been invited to be Jesus' witnesses. We've been invited to stand in that court case and give evidence for who he is and for what he's Done, And the early disciples took this call to be witnesses very seriously. They took it very seriously, but somehow this command to be, very, to be witnesses that the disciples took very seriously has somehow stagnated with us. It's somehow could just come to a screeching halt. It's kind of slowed down and stopped. But if you looked at the way that these men lived, man, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They told Everybody, they were like me in math class, okay? Anybody hate math? Anybody in the room hate math? I hate math. Like the only math I did is I would look at a girl and be like, two plus two, that's me and you, right? Like that's all, and that math problem doesn't even work, right? <laughs> I hated math. So in math class, you know what I did? I just talked all the time. And that's pretty much what the disciples did. They just talked all the time about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. They couldn't keep it to themselves, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They were just witnesses all over the ancient world. And so have you ever read through the book of Acts? Have you ever seen how seriously these men took this command to be Jesus' witness? 
So like in Acts chapter one, okay, Jesus comes to 120 witnesses. There's 120 Christians in Acts chapter one. And he goes, hey, you, you're gonna be my witnesses to the ends of the world. In Acts chapter two, by Acts chapter two, those people are being witnesses so boldly, so bravely that people are becoming Christians every single day. Every single day from one chapter to two chapter. By Acts chapter three, there are 3,000 Christians from 120 to 3,000. By Acts chapter four, there are 5,000 Christians. By Acts chapter six, the Bible just calls them a multitude of men and women. It can't even number them because there are so many Christians. And by Acts chapter seven, the only word that is used to describe the number of Christians is the church multiplied and it multiplied and it multiplied and it multiplied because everyone saw themselves as a sent one as a witness, they saw it as their responsibility to move this movement forward, not to keep it to themselves, but to tell anyone and everyone that they came in contact with about what they had seen and experienced in the scandalous love of Jesus. And somehow this has stagnated with us. Somehow this has slowed down with us. I don't know if you know this or not, but by the year 2050, Christianity will no longer be the largest religion in our world Islam will be. I don't know if you know this or not, but for the first time for in 2000 years, over the course of the last 10 years, Christianity is no longer the fastest growing religion in our world. No longer. And I don't know what that does to your soul, but I can tell you what it does to my soul. It makes me think not on my watch, not while I'm on planet earth, not while it's my turn to elevate the name of Jesus, to be a witness and to make his name famous. And so we've got to do something different. We've got, to, we've got to look at this through a different set of lenses to figure out how do we be the kind of witnesses that cause this small movement, this rural movement, these obscure Jewish people to be the most dominating, fast growing, farthest reaching, most influential movement of all time. How do we begin to live like them? And so this is what I wanna do today is I want to both, um, I wanna intensify and simplify what it means to be a witness. I wanna intensify and simplify what it means to be a witness. We're gonna live in some tension today. I'm gonna make it as simple as possible so that you feel like you can do it. So that you can go, okay, I've got an understanding of what it means to be a witness and I feel like I can do that. And then I wanna intensify it so that you feel the weight of what it actually means so that you say to yourself, okay, I've got to do this. Like I've got to do this. I've got no option but to do this because of the reality of what it means. And so first, let me simplify it. I thought a lot about what direction to go with this message. Um, I thought about giving you like a gospel glossary, giving you like, you know, a list of the words that you would share in the gospel and give you an understanding of what they mean. Because most of the time, Christians, we don't really know what any of these Christian words mean. We just like regurgitate them. Like, brother, where art thou, right? Like we're just saying grace and faith and love and glory and have no idea what they mean. So I thought maybe if I could give you an understanding of what technically those things mean, you'd share the gospel more. And then maybe, maybe I thought if I, I could role play for you, like I could show you how I have gospel conversations, how I get into conversations with people who don't know Jesus, who are far from God, who don't know the love of Christ. Like I could just role play for you and show you kind of some tactics. But the more that I thought about it and the more that I read through the book of Acts, I realized that what we need is not technical or tactical it's testimonial. We need to learn how to really be able to give a testimony of what we have seen and experienced because that's what happens in the book of Acts. Okay, so in Acts chapter four, we see a gospel conversation take place and it's Peter and John, okay? And Peter and John, it's so simple, the gospel conversation that they have. 
It's not complicated or complex. It's not deeply theological or confusing. It's pretty much like this. Jesus rose from the dead. Life and life eternal is found in him. That's the gospel that they proclaim. Literally, if you were to back up this story, you'd roll up on them and they're just having a conversation, just talking to some people. And they're like, hey, just being real. Jesus rose from the dead. Life and life eternal is found in him. And so you wanna know what a gospel conversation is like? You, you just talk to somebody and you go, hey, everything you're searching for, everything you're looking for, in your job, in your relationships, in your successes, in your money, in your new house, and in your nicer car, everything you're searching for, man, it's found in Jesus. He resurrected from the dead and he is the only place that you can find life. He is the only security that you have for an afterlife. Everything that you're looking for is found in Jesus. That's the gospel that they're proclaiming. And some people don't like it. There are these um, officials, these counselors, and they hear Peter and John preaching this gospel and they throw them in prison for it. Watch what happens. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, I think this is really important. If you're just talking about like the big man upstairs or the guy in the sky, that's not the gospel. The gospel starts, stops, begins, and ends with Jesus. That name, while he may be offensive, is the only one that saves. The name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him you be the judges. Doesn't that sound like the world that we live in? Like, like, hey, you should just probably keep that Jesus thing to yourself. Like, like, don't talk. You might offend some people. Some people might feel judged. Some people might feel awkward. Some people might be of a different religion. Let's be inclusive. Let's be understanding. Doesn't that feel like the world that we live in? It's the same world that they lived in. But look what they respond. They says, ask for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They had seen something in the person of Jesus, experienced something in the person of Jesus that they said, this is too good to keep to ourselves. This is too real. This matters too much. This is too big to be quiet, to keep it to ourselves, to not tell others about it. We've got to tell people. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so I just wanna give you the most simple definition for a witness, okay? A witness is somebody who cannot help speaking about what they've seen, heard, and experienced Jesus do. A witness is somebody who cannot help speaking about what they've seen, heard, and experienced Jesus do. You know, there's so much confusion and complexity around what does it mean to be a witness, right? Like, it doesn't mean I gotta be like a holy roller. Can I get a witness? Like, is that what it means? Is that what it means to witness? Or, or does it mean that I've gotta go like witnessing, like go and knock on doors? Anybody ever go witnessing before? Like door-to-door -door evangelism? I see some hands. You're probably Baptist, okay? So uh, I was too. Listen, like I did it. I went door-to-door -door evangelism, witnessing. Um, and just to be real, it was like wildly terrifying. Um, when I did it, I went with this um, group and there was this guy who was like teaching me how to do it. And literally there was this whole crew of us and he taught me how to do it. And then I would go up to the door and he would like stand at the curb with this other group and like evaluate whether or not I was doing it right. So just like try to feel the awkwardness of that and then try to feel the fear of the person who came to the door. <laughs> What are those people doing, right? And so I would go up to the door and I would like knock on the door and I'd ask them a list of questions and I'd be like, if you were to die tonight, do you think that you'd go to heaven? And they would usually be like, are you gonna kill me? Like, what's happening? Like, why are you asking me that weird question? You know, and it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. Um, I, I'll never forget one of the things he said is, man, prayer is so important in witnessing. And so the whole time that you're going up to the door, just make sure that you're praying and praying and praying. I was like, oh bro, I promise. I'm praying the whole time that nobody answers the door. I got you, I'll pray. 
But I want for you to know that witnessing, it's, it's not like that. It's not this complex, this awkward. It doesn't have to be that. It's just got to be about speaking about what you've seen and heard and experienced Jesus do in your own life. So let me ask you, what has he done in your life? What has he done in your marriage? What has he done to make you a father who isn't the same kind of dad that your dad was to you? What has he done in your friendships? What has he done in your soul? What has he done to secure your insecurities and alleviate your anxieties? How has he caused sadness to move to joy? How has he caused you to feel loved and believed in when you used to feel rejected and unworthy? How has he carried you through your miscarriage? How has he stood with you in the dark of night? How has he been the friend that sticks closer than a brother? What has he done in your life? How has he showed up when nobody else showed up? How has he given you a sense of purpose and meaning? How has he set you free from the rat race of chasing after stuff that will not satisfy? What have you seen and heard and experienced Jesus do? Could we just tell people that? Could we just let people know that he's enough, that he's changed us, that he's rescued us, that he took me from being an arrogant, prideful, consumed with myself, bent on success person to say, no, like life isn't about me. Life is about other people in the glory of Jesus' name. And it's so much better like this. Like, can, can I just, can, can we just tell people about what we've seen and heard and experienced Jesus do? Can we tell people about the fact that we know that he died like, that's not that hard, right? Like, 2,000 years ago, he died. Like, he really died. That's not like just a cute song or a fairy tale or like a bedtime story for our kids. A man named Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world. He was beaten brutally, nailed gruesomely to a cross so that we could have life. Could we just tell people about that? And that then he rose from the dead, and this is the most important fact of human history. It's, it's not complicated. Let's just tell about what we've seen and what we've heard. But one of the big problems is that right now, many of us aren't seeing and hearing Jesus. We're not experiencing him right now today. We're just living on something that happened way back in the rear view mirror of our lives. We're, we're living on like the fumes, the exhaust of this faith, of this one moment that happened way back here, but he's not doing anything right here and right now because we're not praying and reading our Bible and really pressing in and trying to disciple people. We're not walking with the Holy Spirit. We're not like laying our lives at his feet and saying, God, do a miracle. God, show up. We're not taking risks with our time and with our money and with our future. We're just playing it safe. And so we're not seeing a move. But what if we started to live like this? What if we started to live in such a way where we're walking like Jesus and talking like Jesus and loving like Jesus and then we just get to tell people about how he shows up? We just get to tell people about how he comes through? We just get to tell people about how he provides and how good he is? Can you do that? Like if we're real, like that's not that hard, right? That's not that difficult by show of hands. Can you do that? Can we just be a church that tells people about what we've seen and heard and experienced Jesus do? It's not that hard to be a witness of something that you've really seen and really experienced it. And so that's simplified, right? I simplified what it means to be a witness, just to be somebody who tells people who can't help but tell people about what they've seen and heard and experienced Jesus do in their life. I'm just telling people, my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers, just telling them in casual conversation and intentional conversation, hey, this is what Jesus done, this is what Jesus is doing, this is why Jesus matters, this is how Jesus makes me a better dad, this is how Jesus makes me a better father, this is how Jesus makes me a better husband, this is how Jesus gives me purpose. 
Can we just be witnesses in that way? Doesn't that feel really simple? So I went to um, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, and um, the people at the first service made fun of the way I said Illinois, just so you know. So y'all are way more godly than they are. So um, I went to Moody and Moody's got this uh, radio program. And about a year and a half ago, there was this lady who came on the radio program. She was a nurse and she was being interviewed because she was a nurse at a hospital in Chicago. And this woman had been, um, had gotten this idea of being a witness. She took it so real, just telling people about what she'd seen and heard and experienced Jesus do, that she had um, seen everybody on her shift, on her floor, except for three people come to follow Jesus close to 100 people in under two years. It's amazing. And so they're interviewing her on this radio program and they ask her, they're like, man, you just must be an amazing nurse. And she goes, whoa, 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 I'm not a nurse. I'm a witness disguised as a nurse. How good is that? What if we saw our lives, our jobs, our careers as, you know, God has uniquely designed us and strategically placed us in our company, in our place of business as a sales consultant, as an entrepreneur, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a teacher, as a nurse, not to be those things, but to be a witness in those areas. It's not hard. It's simple. Just tell them about what Jesus has seen and heard. And so now that I've simplified for it, simplified it for you, let me elevate it for you. Shouldn't be that hard. Um, the Bible, the New Testament is written in Greek, okay? And so the word witness in Greek is this. It's martrion, martrion, okay? That's the word in Greek for witness. Now, let me show you the word in English for witness, martyr. The same word that Jesus used for witnesses for the first disciples we now use for martyr. These men understood that to be a witness for Jesus meant that they would have to lay down their lives to move this testimony forward. You've seen this movie before, yeah? You've seen the movie, the CSI episode where there's some gangster who's on trial for a crime and there's a hesitant witness to come and testify because they're afraid that if they testify that somebody's gonna take their life, that a member of the gang or that gangster, something's gonna be orchestrated and they're gonna lose their life. They testify and so they, they won't testify because even knowing that if they testify, they'll send that person to jail, right? But then every now and again, you'll see this bold, this brave person who's willing to testify. Can I tell you that the gospel is like that only tenfold? because we're called to testify and it may cost us something. We may have to lay something down, but what happens is somebody doesn't get condemned. Somebody gets set free when we testify. People get to experience the freedom of being loved, the freedom of being adopted, the freedom of being a part of God's family when we speak up about what we have seen and heard. This is the way that the disciples lived. Like all you have to do is read the book of Acts to know that this is the way that these men lived. Check it out, Acts chapter five, verse 40. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Doesn't that feel like 2019? Don't speak in Jesus' name. Don't bring up Jesus' name. Don't talk about Jesus at work. Don't talk about Jesus at school. Don't talk about Jesus on Facebook. Don't bring up Jesus' name. Then they left the presence of the council. This is insane. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, I don't know about you, but my emotions towards that experience is precisely the opposite, right? 
So like if I'm sharing the gospel, if I'm telling somebody about Jesus and they like reject me, they don't wanna be my friend anymore. They think I'm weird. I, I tend to feel really bad on the inside. Don't you? Like, oh man, gosh, I can't believe that they rejected me. Oh, I'm gonna go crawl in a hole and sleep and drink Starbucks all day, right? Like that's, that's my emotion if somebody rejects me. But these men go, I'm so glad that I was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Like where is that in us? Where is this gratitude? Like, I'm so pumped that like I had an opportunity to make Jesus famous and I got small, but he got big. Like, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And then look at their response. And so every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching Jesus and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Like, that's, that's amazing. And it just doesn't happen here where these men get beaten. If you look at Acts chapter six, Stephen gets in prison, one of the disciples. And then in Acts chapter seven, he gets stoned and he dies. Then in Acts chapter eight, Saul of Tarsus persecutes the church so greatly that they have to scatter for their lives just for the church to continue to stay alive. And then in Acts chapter nine, Saul of Tarsus gets saved. So he has a gospel experience, gives his life to Jesus, becomes a Christian because Paul, a great evangelist, a great witness for the cause of Christ. In Acts chapter 11, James, the brother of Jesus, is murdered and Paul or Peter is thrown in prison. I could go on and on and on. These men are beaten, battered, nailed to crosses. They're killed. They lay down their lives for Jesus to be a witness. And this, is, this isn't just, this didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus said this is what it was gonna take. Matthew Check it out, Matthew chapter 16, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Could we lose our comfort? Could we lose our insatiable need to fit in? Could we lose our perception at the country club? Could we lose how people are gonna think about us at our kids' schools? Could we lose our convenience? Could we lose playing it safe? Could we lose being politically correct? Could we lose anything to move the message of Jesus forward? Would you be willing to be a witness in this way? We've got this group of men, these followers that have gone before us, that have blazed this trail, that have set this path of being a witness, of not being able to keep it to themselves, what they've seen and what they've heard and what they've experienced and who are willing to lay down their lives, lay down their comfort, lay down their careers, lay down their jobs to see the gospel move forward. What will you be willing to lay down? Would you lose, what would you lose for it? And I know that that could be like intimidating and scary. You're like, I don't know if I could do it, Joey. I don't know if I'm really wired like that. Like, Joey, that feels like it's for you. Like you're outgoing, you're passionate, you're loud, you're obnoxious, a lot of other adjectives, right? Like that feels great for you, but I don't know if I could do that. And there starts to be all of these feelings like I'm not wired that way. Like that doesn't match my Enneagram type, okay? Like that's not my Myers-Briggs. Um, like, where are my introverts at? Where are my introverts? By show of hands in the room, you, you, you're scared to raise your hand because you're an introvert, okay? <laughs> I love you, okay? My wife is one of you. And so I've brought you into my fold and welcomed you with gifts, okay? So I love you introverts, okay? But 
sometimes what will happen with introverts or with people who are more shy or who are more timid is they will use their quote unquote wiring for an excuse to not share the gospel. And maybe it's not introversion, maybe it's something else for you, but whatever it is for you, whatever excuse comes to your mind when you think about why it is that you don't need to have gospel conversations, I want for you to consider just maybe, just maybe taking pride in being the same kind of missionary that Paul was. What if you could be the same kind of missionary that Paul was? Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter nine. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. He goes on to say to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. To one outside the law, I became outside the law. To one under the law, I became under the law. And the idea is, is if I've got to become an extrovert to tell somebody about Jesus, I'll become an extrovert to save as many as possible. If I'm shy and awkward and don't feel like I can say something, I will let that be my cross to bear and I will lose my wiring for the sake of the gospel. That would be a cool church to be a part of. I would be so pumped to be a part of a church who goes, I'll lay it down. I'll lay down how I'm wired. I'll lay down how I feel. I'll lay down how people perceive me. I'll lay it all down because I believe that Jesus is worthy, that the gospel matters, that heaven and hell are real and that he is enough. He is enough. Now, here's one thing that I've gotta have you know is that like you really can't underestimate the importance of prayer in gospel conversations. You can't underestimate the importance of it. It is so massively important for you to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and beg God to give you courage and boldness to have gospel conversations. I think that sometimes there's this perception that like people who are evangelists, people who share the gospel, people who do that are just like really jacked up on Jesus juice, okay? that like they drink, there's something in their water, there's something like, and they just do it and that it's easy and natural and that they're never afraid and never, uh, uh, and that's, nothing could be further from the truth. Like when I do it, I've got to like coach myself up, talk myself into it. Like, okay, Joe, you can do it. Like you're gonna do it, just do it. And uh, okay, you got this, uh, and boom. And I'll get in a conversation about the gospel. But the reason that I do it is because I spend a lot of time praying about this stuff. I spend a lot of time asking God to do this. Like one of the foremost prayers in your marriage, one of the foremost prayers um, with your friends or in your small group should be, God, give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the strength, give us the words to say, give us eyes to see people like you see them so that we'll have gospel conversations. Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up that was promised, if, if we're not empowered by him, we're gonna be dead in the water. We're gonna be weak and timid and, and, and awkward and honestly just not do it. Like, so when we see Peter and John stand before the council and they're bold, they're like, we can't help but say about what we've seen and heard. They're so bold. I'm like, where does that come from? Well, if you keep on reading in Acts chapter four, you see that the whole time while they were being bold, the church was praying for him. Check it out. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats, the threats of the people who are coming against Peter and John and grant your servants, Peter and John, to continue to speak your word with all, give me that word, boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Man, I think that it needs to be this passion for us to pray all the time for God to give us boldness. You know, one of the things that I pray all of the time, like if you spend any time with me, you're gonna know I pray this, is I pray, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
It's a prayer that David prays in the Psalms. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain. And if you hang out with me, literally, like for 10 minutes, I'm probably gonna pray this prayer. And I'm always asking God to remind me of the joy that came in my salvation. And, and I want for you to begin to, to, to pray this prayer. I want for you to think about the joy of your salvation for just a second. Think about it. Think about that moment when you knew for the first time that you'd been adopted into the family of God. Like when your sin became real and gruesome and disgusting and something that you were ashamed of and that you didn't want to define you anymore. Like when you came to terms with the, with the severity of your sin, but then you realized the reality of the cross. I want for you to think about that moment for a second when like you realize that Jesus died, like he bled for you. It should have been you up there. Should have been nails through your wrist. It should have been a spear through your side. It should have been a crown of thorns on your head. Think about when you got that, that God loved you, that he doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you, but he loves you desperately as a dad. He loves you. Think about when you got that. You have that moment in your mind, where were you? Were you at a church service, maybe like church camp? You had to nail something across, throw your ACDC records in the fire, demon hiss, right? Like, you remember the moment? Where was it for you? Were you at church camp singing how he loves for the 17th time? What was that moment where the gospel broke in and you were reminded of the joy of your salvation? Do you know why I pray that all the time? Because when I pray that, I'm reminded that some people have never experienced that moment. Some people have never understood that God loves them and is for them and wants to give them a new identity, new eyes to see, wants to set them free from their sin, wants to give them new purpose and a new calling. And when I'm reminded of this, man, it just causes me to be more bold about bringing the gospel forward. Because here's the reality. We will speak boldly about what we believe deeply. We will speak boldly about what we believe deeply. And so if we can be reminded of what we believe, if we can be reminded of the cross, if we can be reminded of eternity, if we can be reminded of forgiveness, if we can be reminded of Freedom, and we can believe that those things are real and available and tangible for a world that is searching in the dark, who is desperately looking for what they're trying to find. If we can be reminded of that, then we'll speak boldly about what we believe deeply. The gospel, I wanna give you a definition for it. The gospel is this, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done in the past 2000 years ago, canceling our sin is doing right now actively in our lives, making us look more like him. Can do for the people who do not yet know him and will do when we open our mouths to be willing witnesses. This is the gospel. You see, so often people think that if they come to church, if they hear the good news, that it's gonna be bad news. We don't have bad news. We have good news that people can be rescued, people can be healed, people can be forgiven, that people can find their home. So let me ask you, who's your one? Who is your one that hasn't experienced the can do and will do of the good news of the gospel? Who is the person in your neighborhood? Who's the person on your kid's sports team? Who is the person at your place of work? Who is your family member? The person who lives in your house? Who is it? I want for you to think about a name right now in your mind. Who's your one? And I want for you to know that God put that name in your mind in that moment, not the enemy. He doesn't want you to talk to that person. He doesn't want that person to hear the good news. God put that name in your mind in that moment for a reason. I believe it. And it's our opportunity to do something about it. You know, 82% of people 
say that they'd come to church if they were invited by somebody that cares. 82% of people say that they would come to church if they were invited by somebody who cares. Now I'm gonna up the ante at Easter. People are 10 times more likely to come to church. And just to be real with you, one of the easiest ways to get in the gospel is just by asking people, so do you go to church anywhere? That's my lead in typically, because then they can be like, nah, I don't. I grew up and there was all this religious baggage and people are a bunch of hypocrites. And I just, I don't really do that anymore. And I can be like, no, I feel that I get you. You're right. Like we are a bunch of hypocrites. How crazy is it that God loves any of us, you know? And I just get to get in. It's a perfect interlude to be able to share my story and share what church has meant for me and that every church isn't like that and that Jesus is bigger than that. But then it gives me an opportunity to invite them to church. And so who's your one that you need to invite to church to invite to Easter? Easter is gonna be extraordinary, people. For the doubter, for the skeptic, for the cynic, for the person who's unsure, for the non-believer, for them to be able to come and get an evidentiary perspective of what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead, it's gonna be transformative. And this is your opportunity, this is your moment to leverage this time of year to invite them to be able to come and experience what you've seen and what you've heard in the person of Jesus. What would you be willing to do? What would you be willing to lay down? And I think that we should be willing to lose like how people perceive us, lose being cool, lose having to say the right thing, lose whatever we have to lose. And what would you do to get people here? Would you kidnap them, put them in the trunk of your car? Would you lie to them, tell them you're gonna take them to lunch and then be like, well, we're gonna eat this small bread and juice later on. Hope it satisfies. Like, would you show up with, and just like show up at their house? Like, don't even invite them and wait for them to respond. Just be like, hey, I'm out here. I got your Starbucks order. It's like a shaken, non-fat, stirred pump of vanilla, extra hot latte. It's for you. Come on, hop in my car. Let's go to church. Would you break their legs? Just drag them? Would you? I mean... I, I don't know, we'll take up a love offering for the doctor bills, like whatever, whatever it takes. Would you take the gospel seriously enough? Would you take the call to be witness seriously enough to do whatever it takes to get people to come and see and hear what you've gotten to experience? We'll speak boldly about what we believe deeply. And so this is what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a time of communion for a time of reflection. And I don't want you to leave yet I want for you to just kind of just sit and I want for you to think about the gospel. I want for you to think about that 2000 years ago, right before Jesus died, he took this loaf of bread and he said, hey, this is my body and it's getting ready to be broken for you, broken in pieces for you. It's getting ready to be shattered. It's getting ready to be beaten and whipped for you. And then he took a, a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. And it's getting ready to be poured out to wash all your sins away, to cleanse you from all your filth, all your baggage, all your regrets, all your shame, all your guilt, all your secrets, all your lies. It's gonna wash you clean. And so I want for you to do this in remembrance of me until I come back. Because if you can remember what I've done for you, maybe you won't keep it to yourself. Maybe you'll take this gospel that lights up the darkest places of the world and you'll share it with those around you. And so we're gonna move into time of communion. And we believe that communion is for those who have come to terms with the gospel, who have surrendered to Jesus, who follow him as Lord. This is a way for us to celebrate and to remember his death and re resurrection and proclaim it until he comes again. And so I'm gonna pray. And then I'm gonna invite you to come to take communion. You'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup. And then you'll go back to your seat. And I just want for you to think about, I want for you to pray, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation and tell me who my, who, who's my one. 
Who's the person who I'm going to drag to Easter? Jesus, we love you. And I'm so grateful for the truth of your word. And I just pray that we are inspired and challenged, that we're motivated and that we're captivated by the glory of the gospel to the point that we can't keep it to ourselves. God, I pray that we would become a church that can't help but tell about what we've seen and heard and experienced. And God, I pray that as we take communion together today, God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your grace and that we would be reminded of the joy of our salvation. I ask it for the beauty of your name and all God's people said, amen.